Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Calgary, Alberta is located in western Canada, a 10-hour drive northeast of Vancouver. It's a large city with a population of a million and a half. Its backdrop of stunning Rocky Mountains and its metropolitan high-rises make it attractive for film and television. It is also home to the oil and gas industry, which has experienced many boom and bust cycles in the last century. In 2015, Calgary had the highest number of millionaires per capita in Canada. Ryan Jenkins grew up in Calgary, the only son of Nada and Dan. His father, a respected and well-known architect, described his son as sweet and kind. He attended Western Canada High School in Calgary and later graduated from Mount Royal College in 1999. Ryan's circle of friends included those working in real estate and the oil and gas industry, who all made big money, worked hard, and played hard. In 2001, working along with his father, he became a real estate developer. His first condo project was a stylish modern four-unit building. It was a success, and he soon moved on to new projects. Ryan was good-looking, a snappy dresser. He enjoyed the ladies and had a tendency to fall hard and fast in love. On a trip to Las Vegas, he met Paulina, and in a whirlwind romance, she moved to Calgary to be with him. In 2007, Ryan had a new girlfriend, whom he assaulted. He was charged and sentenced to 15 months probation and ordered to take domestic violence counseling and attend outpatient therapy for sex addiction. He developed real estate for eight years until the recession hit in 2009 and the real estate market collapsed. That's when he learned he'd been picked to be a contestant on the TV show Megan Wants a Millionaire and he headed off to Los Angeles in the United States for filming. The show described him as an investment banker with a net worth of $2.5 million. Although his was likely much less, the show said of its contestants that part of the fun was picking out the fakes. Ryan's nickname was Smooth Operator. He described himself as a little bit of Prince Charming and a little bit of a bad boy, and said that he liked to date girls who could turn a lot of heads. Jasmine Lepore had an energy about her, and when she entered her room, her radiance lit it up. She was beautiful on the outside and also had an inner beauty that people admired. Born in Arizona in 1981, her family moved to Bonnie Dune, a very small town with 2,500 people just south of San Francisco. ABC News reported that her mother, Lisa, could describe her as feisty and not one to easily back down. Sarah, her friend since fifth grade, 
said she was a beautiful girl and she knew that could take her places. She wanted big things in her life and was going to go get them. And another friend, Gwen, said that she wanted to be famous. She didn't think her last name sounded like a star and changed it to Fiore. Jasmine was naturally pretty, with beautiful big eyes, a tiny nose, alabaster skin, and full lips. She changed her hair color from sandy brown to black to platinum blonde and had her breasts augmented. She moved to Las Vegas for work. Her athletic frame was too short for typical modeling, but she modeled swimsuits and did TV commercials. She dated a lot of men and afterwards always stayed on good terms with them and kept in touch, including Robert Hasman, whom she'd been with for a very long time. Although she was engaged numerous times, she was still seeking real, true love. She quietly married Mike Cardosi, but it didn't last when he went to prison on drug charges. Then in March 2009, she met Ryan at a party in Las Vegas, and two days after they met, the two tied the knot. Jasmine gushed to Gwen, saying that he was handsome, charismatic, and sexy, but she didn't tell a friend that they'd gotten married. She moved from Las Vegas to Los Angeles. She got a real estate license and started a personal training business with a friend. She moved into a penthouse in Fairfax, not far from the Santa Monica Boulevard and the famous Melrose Avenue. Her mother, Lisa, was staying with her when Ryan moved in. Rumors swirled that he had married her only to get his green card so that he could stay working in the U.S. A friend of Jasmine's claimed that it was a business deal and she heard he was going to pay her $10,000, but that could not be confirmed. Either way, she kept her marriage hidden from most of her friends, who couldn't help but notice that their relationship was volatile and that they both cheated on each other. The couple flew back and forth a couple times between Los Angeles and Calgary. Ryan took her to Banff and to a nightclub to introduce her to his friends, but they didn't seem impressed with his new wife. They found her demanding and manipulative, and he confided to one of his friends that money was very important to her, and he found it very stressful to support her lifestyle. Ryan didn't tell Jasmine about his violent past before marrying her, but a month later, she found out. In April, Travis Henrik, a friend of Jasmine's, happened to be at the hotel in Las Vegas and was by the pool when he saw Jasmine. He noticed that she said something to Ryan, and he reacted by punching her in the arm. He hit her hard enough that she fell into the pool, fully dressed. Jasmine filed a domestic violence report, and the marriage was annulled. He was charged with battery, and a trial date was scheduled for December. This was the second time in three years that he had been charged with domestic abuse. In June, Ryan flew back alone to Calgary for a visit with family and friends. McLean's magazine reported that he told his friend Chris Tuddy that he had been used and lied to and that people were making fun of him. His dad, Dan, told him many times to get out of the relationship. 
Ryan was eager to move on with his TV career and was selected for a second reality show, I Love Money, and he flew off to Mexico for filming. Jasmine confided in her friend Gwen that they'd broken up and called him controlling. She returned to the single scene and reportedly went on a vacation in Mexico with her former boyfriend Robert. In late July, Ryan emailed Jasmine, If you can come back to me and stop all the craziness, we can have a wonderful life. Your forgiveness, trust, and loyalty is all I need right now. And when your love for me grows and our lives are heading in the right direction, I'll truly feel complete. I will never leave you. I only want you. The email worked and the couple reunited. In early August, she was in touch with Robert and was planning to visit him. They exchanged texts and emails, and he received a message from her that said, I'm coming. On Thursday, August 13th, Jasmine packed her suitcase, stuffed it completely full. Her and Ryan climbed into her two-year-old white Mercedes and headed to a poker tournament in San Diego. The Fresno Bee reported that the couple checked in to a luxury boutique hotel, then went to the poker tournament at the San Diego Hilton. Later that night, she chatted with Robert, which threw Ryan into a jealous rage. When they left the tournament and passed through the lobby, a witness saw them arguing and heard him tell her that she was making a fool out of him in front of his friends. But then the couple appeared to settle their differences. At 2.30 a.m., video surveillance showed the couple getting into her car. No one knows for sure what happened over the next two hours, but it's thought that while driving, Ryan flew into rage and attacked Jasmine. He brutally beat her, broke her nose, blood splattered everywhere. He strangled her to death. Jasmine was 28. Two hours later, at 4.30 a.m., Ryan returned to their hotel room. He checked out at 9 a.m., minus Jasmine and her luggage. Using pliers, Ryan methodically removed her perfect white teeth, one by one. Then he severed each of her fingers at the joint below her fingernails. With all attempts to identify her removed, he emptied her suitcase, removed the clothes from her body, and packed her tiny naked frame into her suitcase. He used her cell phone to send two text messages. The first to himself, saying she was going to get her nails done. The second was to Robert saying, suck it. Later that morning, a man looking for recyclables checked the dumpster behind an apartment building. There, he discovered a blood-stained suitcase. He opened it and thought he found a child's body and called police. That night at 8.55 p.m., Ryan walked into the West Hollywood Sheriff's Station and reported Jasmine missing. He claimed that she had gone out to run errands and hadn't come home, and the last time he saw her was at 7.30 p.m. the night before. He described her outfit as white pants, 
pink tank top and black flip-flops, and that she had perfect teeth and had just gone to get her nails done. It's interesting that he focused on the two things that he'd removed from her body. Was his guilty subconscious speaking, or was he trying to mislead police? Police found no evidence of foul play in their hotel room and began a search for her car. After reporting her missing, Ryan avoided calls from police, which they found suspicious, so they released a photograph of him with the hope that the public could help locate him or her missing car. They believed that the license plate on her Mercedes had been removed and the plate from his BMW SUV put in its place. Now most people know that medical implants contain a serial number. The coroner was able to identify Jasmine by the serial number on her implants. Orange County District Attorney Tony Rokakis released a statement that said, Mr. Jenkins is considered dangerous, possibly armed, and has the financial means to hide anywhere in the world. Anyone helping Mr. Jenkins hide from the police may go to prison themselves. In a resume posted on a networking site, Jenkins said he is licensed to fly commercial airplanes. Police are aware of all his resources. All modes of transportation are being monitored. They believed he might flee back to Canada and notified authorities there. On Tuesday, police named Ryan a person of interest. Meanwhile, questions arose as to how a man with a history of domestic abuse had been chosen for a TV show. The company in Los Angeles that produced the show claimed that they were not aware of his past due to a clerical error made in Canada. Both Megan Wants a Millionaire and I Love Money were pulled off the air. On Wednesday, Ryan's black SUV and empty boat trailer were spotted at a marina in Blaine, Washington, just south of the Canadian border in British Columbia. The car's engine was still warm to the touch. His boat, the Night Rider, was gone. They had just missed him. The U.S. Coast Guard was notified, and they spotted his speedboat and gave chase. At high speed, the speedboat swerved back and forth in the water, entered Canadian waters, then crossed back into the U.S. At one point, the Coast Guard got close enough to order its driver to stop, but instead he sped off. Around 5 p.m., Ryan pulled into the marina in Point Roberts, Washington. Eight hours later, at 1 a.m., police discovered his boat and believed he had walked across the border at Tawasson back into Canada. On Thursday, police charged Ryan with murder and released the gruesome details of her murder. Officials in Orange County, California, filed paperwork to extradite Ryan from Canada in case he had fled there. If he did, they would present their evidence to a Canadian court, who would then sign the extradition request. In Canada, police conducted searches by ground, air, and used canine units. It turns out that, indeed, he did find his way back to Canada, and likely made his way to his stepsister's mother's house in Tawasson. 
and from there he connected with his 19-year-old stepsister, Alina. The next day, the U.S. Marshal Service announced a $25,000 reward for information leading to Ryan's capture, and both U.S. and Canadian citizens were eligible. Even Dwayne Chapman, known as Dog the Bounty Hunter, offered to help locate Ryan and bring him in. On Thursday, Ryan sat in the passenger seat of a silver PT cruiser with Alberta license plates. In the driver's seat, Satellina. They traveled along the Trans-Canada Highway, heading north from the border for about 75 miles. There, in the little town of Hope, nestled in the Fraser Canyon, they pulled in to the rundown Thunderbird Motel. It was a far cry from the five-star hotels that he was used to. The motel, built in 1960, is nestled against the towering mountains. Its small, single-story cabins form a neat row. Its main two-story building contained more rooms. She parked the car near the garbage bin and went to the motel office while he stayed in the car. She was calm when she chatted with the manager, telling him she needed a room for three days, possibly more. She put the room in her name and prepaid with cash. They walked towards room number two on the first floor. A single outdoor light illuminated its plain white door. She and Ryan entered the room and she helped them get settled. Twenty minutes later, she was gone. The room was sparse but tidy. Inside was a bed with a floral bedspread. Covering the windows were floral drapes. They didn't match. Just inside the door was a small brown desk with an old TV sitting on top. On the wall behind the door was a simple metal coat rack that protruded from the wall, similar to the type motels use to store folded towels. At the end of the rod swung an air freshener shaped like a tree. The bathroom was simple with a square sink that hung off the wall. The mirror above was fastened to the wall with plastic clips, and above it was a plain light fixture with two bulbs. Later that day, Ryan opened up his laptop and typed a one-and-a-half-page letter titled Will and Testament. The Los Angeles Times reported that he wrote how much he loved Jasmine and about his jealousy and his frustration with her cheating. He accepted no blame, and he did not mention her murder. He apologized to his family and left his estate to them. Over the next two days, he walked around the outside of the motel. He had lost weight, his face sunken, and his clothes were worn. He looked nothing like his picture being circulated on TV. No one at the motel recognized him. Sometime between Saturday evening and Sunday morning, Ryan decided to stop running. His prepaid stay was ending, and he decided to check out, but not the way you would imagine. He took his belt and fastened it around his neck and looped it around the metal rod on the coat rack. His body slumped. His feet hit the floor. Ryan was dead at 32. When he hadn't left by checkout time, 
The manager knocked on his door and yelled out, Hello. The province newspaper reported that when he didn't receive an answer, he used his master key to open the door. Just a crack. He peered in and saw an open laptop. He opened the door wider and saw Ryan, still hanging from the belt. He reeled backwards and called police. Within an hour, police announced to the public that the man dead in the motel room was indeed Ryan Jenkins. Police believed that he alone was responsible for Jasmine's murder. The public could rest easy now. The population in the small town of Hope swelled over the coming days as news outlets from across both countries descended in droves to get a glimpse of where the unlikely ending had occurred and hoped to shed light on a brutal crime that fascinated the public for nine days. Growing up in the Okanagan, we spent many summers driving the highway between it and the Lower Mainland. I remember the long lines of cars towing travel trailers as they wound their way through the twists and turns of the old highway that snakes through the canyon, dips down to the Fraser River, then inches its way back up into the mountains. Hope is where travelers take a break at the truck stop along the straight stretch of Flood Hope Road, just down from the Thunderbird Motel. Not far is tow truck operator Jamie Davis's yard, who you may recognize from TV's Highway Through Hell. And going back to 1981, Rambo movie fans may recall Sylvester Stallone's movie, First Blood, was filmed in Hope. The coroner positively identified Ryan, and police focused on finding Jasmine's car. Three days later, someone spotted it in a grocery store parking lot in West Hollywood, a mile from her apartment. It looked oddly out of place. Covered in mud, twigs and weeds hung from its undercarriage. Its license plate was gone. Inside, investigators found blood on the passenger seat, the back seat, and the rear window. The investigation into Jasmine's death had ended. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Celeste Franzman, who grew up happy, but two tragedies sent her reeling down a dark path. Fueled by drugs and anger, her former lover set out to destroy her in a blaze of fire. But her will to live was so strong, she hung on just long enough to name her killers. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects and fasting studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, 
sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.